0: Hey, welcome to the podcast of the Kelly Catrera Show for Wednesday, September 2nd. Today on the podcast, employment lawyer Leo Sanfiru joins the show with a warning on how Uber is attempting to force its drivers to give up their right to participate in the $400 million class action lawsuit. So if you know an Uber driver, point them towards this podcast. And Rye Moran, director of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, will join us to talk about the importance of two former residential schools being recognized as historic sites in Canada. Now, lockdown started in mid-March. You remember mid-March? Holy moly, when the world changed. Uh, The Ontario Ministry of Health directed Ontario hospitals to cancel elective surgeries and non-emergency-related activities to help prepare for an anticipated surge in patients with COVID-19. And we talked about this at the time, and I was shocked to learn, you know, we went in-depth in the story that elective surgeries just means scheduled surgeries. So anything that was scheduled, because elective makes it sound like they're not important surgeries, but these were scheduled surgeries. Everything was canceled. Now, despite the directive being lifted in May, we have a major surgical backlog going on in Ontario. According to a modeling study where they take, you know, the the numbers, they throw them in in, in a computer and they figure out... um, A conclusion based on, you know, what this computer spits out as far as uh, moving forward, what we're going to be looking at, it will take over a year and a half to clear the backlog within our system. Here to talk about this is Dr. Jonathan Irish. He is a surgeon at the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre, and he's with the University Health Network and the University of Toronto. And he was one of the authors um, in this uh, study. Welcome to the show. Good to have you on.
1: Oh, thanks, Kelly, and thanks for your interest in this.
0: Well, I think everybody should have interest in this because, as I said earlier on, elective surgeries, it's it's not just like a little thing... um, that is unimportant, it's any scheduled surgery. So give us an idea of the implications of what you learned here when we're looking at it over a year and a half of a backlog.
1: Yeah, obviously uh, we have a challenge moving forward and uh, you've already touched on uh, with a great background on, on the issues. Uh, when our, our study essentially looked at the surgical activity that was performed between March 15th and June 15th of this year. And we compared that to the surgical volumes that were performed in 2017, 2018, and 2019 in Ontario. And we found that we have over 148,000 surgical operations Mm -hmm. that were not completed. Uh, Over 5,000 of those were cancer operations. So, you know, obviously the impact on our patients and the impact to our our system is a profound one. So it's the paper, uh, as you pointed out, it's uh, using this data and uh, using what resources we know are available. That includes operating room resources, nursing staff, uh, masks and PPE protection, as well as other resources, and basically models how long it would take if we, uh, increased our surgical services to 110 to 115% by working every Saturday uh, in 50% of our operating rooms. And as you commented on, it would take over a year and a half to clear the backlog. And if we just concentrated on cancer surgery, cardiac surgery, and transplant surgery, it would take three and a half months to clear the backlog. Uh, that being said, uh, I just want to clarify that you know some surgeries did occur during the apex of the pandemic. So while we know that there was a 96% reduction in benign surgery and I'll use an example, you know hip replacement, knee replacement, hernia repair, cataracts, there was a 38% reduction in cancer surgery. So you can see that even during the apex of the pandemic we tried to prior- prioritize our patients as best as we could given the resources that we had to uh, push our patients through our, our system to be able to care for patients who had more time-sensitive uh, surgical uh, needs and demands uh, like cardiac cancer uh, mm-hmm. transplant and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and high-priority vascular surgery.
0: Yeah, my brother's a cardiac surgeon. I know he was still working through the pandemic. Uh, you know, work was scaled back, but if it was important work, work that was time-sensitive, we weren't leaving people in the lurch. That said, when you look at a cancer surgery or, you know, people that are investigating, you know, I've said this before, say a woman finds a lump in her breast, you know, she might not have even gotten to the stage where they were looking at surgery yet, but everything was put on hold. And so there are people that could have gotten worse over this um uh, this time frame where we closed down and, and during lockdown, and also you know that that um, are progressively getting worse as we wait to clear a backlog. So let's touch on the fact that we're also even if you guys increase the amount of time you can work and you're humans, we. It's important that everyone um, gets the rest they require to be able to operate, literally, in this case, surgeons, at 100%. You're dealing with, you know, having somebody on your table. It could be a life and death situation. Let's talk about the limited operating room space that we have, because I think that's something that's important that we touch on.
1: Yeah, so you've pointed, you've raised two important points. Number one, there was a whole pipeline, and that's part of uh, why our study is so uh, good. in that it measures the uh, number of surgeries that were not done. But it's the entire pipeline that closed down. For example, you mentioned that there uh, may be a patient with a lump in her breast. Um, diagnostic services, mammography services, colonoscopy services were closed down uh, during that period of time. So there's a whole pipeline from diagnosis, CT scan, MRI scan, imaging, and so on, That slowed the entire system. So it's not just about operating rooms. It's about the entire pipeline that a patient goes through from a primary care doctor to all of the tests that were performed to finally, of course, getting surgery. So that's why our uh, research and our paper is so important, because while there's a whole pipeline that was slowed, we're showing the entire effects by the fact that patients didn't get surgery. Part of the research, yep. The second point of human resource, and, and that's really important. Uh, so you mentioned surgeons, but I work in a team. So mm-hmm. I work in a, uh, in a team of nurses in the operating room. We have nurses in post-operative recovery and the wards and so on. And some of these uh, individuals are redeployed to long-term care facilities. In other words, we work hard not just in surgery but in caring for patients Uh, you know, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're dealing with humans. So it's not just about the fact that we may have an OR that's clear physical space. We're working with humans who, you know, clearly have worked very hard during the course of the last four months, and we're asking them now. To work even harder to clear the backlog
0: not to mention the fact and we haven't brought this up yet that we're looking at a possible second wave so we're asking people to work really hard to clear the backlog which is i imagine longer hours and quite exhausting and get ready for that second wave which you know there's no time off it's all hands on deck if we have a second wave that was you know is like the first wave or even worse so let's talk about how your report also Um, talks about getting, you you can't get back to business as usual, but you have to employ innovative uh, systems based on solutions to provide patients with timely surgical care and prepare for future COVID waves. Is there a jurisdiction that you can point to that's already implementing innovative systems that that you're looking at for a solution here to clear the backlog quickly?
1: Well, sure. So we're looking at all options, obviously, and uh, this is kind of an all hands on deck kind of a approach and uh, we're in, uh, considering all ideas. So uh, first of all, a couple of issues. Number one, uh, our paper deals with how to be reactive. In other words, how do we deal with the backlog that's already occurred? The second issue, and you mentioned it, is how do we deal with the potential second and subsequent ways of the pandemic so that in the future, we're not faced with the situation that we're now faced with. And so as a clinical leader, I'm working with the ministry uh, through various groups and other clinical leaders to come up with solutions to prevent uh, the complete shutdown of services that or near complete shutdown of services that occurred in order to take care of the non-COVID-19 patients in a covid 19 uh patient environment so in other words to create situations where we can care for patients uh in in the 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 pandemic that we're faced with and i think we can do that we know much more about the disease today than we knew in march Uh, we have better testing we have better contact testing We have better PPE, supply chain management, and we know that we don't have to take the same approach that we did in March. In March, we took a mass casualty event approach, as if 100 airplanes had crashed in Ontario simultaneously, and we had to create an immediate uh, resource for caring for all that patient uh, load. We now know that uh, if there was an uptick of 100 cases in Ottawa, today. We know that a certain percentage of patients two weeks from now or three weeks from now may require inpatient service. A certain percentage may require critical care service and we don't have to shut down services in Thunder Bay, uh, Windsor and Toronto for an uptick that may be occurring in Ottawa. We can be much more regionally responsive and be planning our surgical and other health care resources to be reactive locally to uh, changes in the pandemic and dictated by the pandemic. And we've proven that we can be responsive. In a short period of time, we can create capacity. And with good contact tracing and testing, we can be locally responsive with our healthcare services.
0: Would one of the solutions be looking at separate spaces other than hospitals to care for COVID-19 patients if we get a second wave?
1: So, you know, uh, All ideas are being considered. Uh, I know, uh, for example, there are some jurisdictions, in uh, example, uh, Manitoba has looked at options of using independent health facilities outside hospitals to care for patients. I think a couple of principles here. Whatever solutions we come up in Ontario, or for that matter in Canada, or any other jurisdiction, I think we want them to be safe. I think we want them to be timely and I think we want them to be high quality. So we have to be very careful in a sense that we don't uh, create just a, a, a timely access to care without high quality. So if I were to ask, let's say, I'm just gonna use an example, a plastic surgery center that's doing cosmetic surgery to all of a sudden do a hip replacement, you know, I think we have to be very careful that we ensure that we have the right people And that we have the right teams caring for the patient and that we don't substitute quality for timeliness. So while it sounds uh, like it would be a quick solution to a problem, uh, we also have to understand that we don't want to create new problems uh, from these uh, supposed solutions.
0: Dr. Irish, when you put the uh, all the numbers into the computer for your modeling study and you learned that it would take over a year and a half to clear the backlog in our surgeries that we you know, postponed during lockdown um, and that we canceled during lockdown, were you surprised or were you expecting that result? Were you expecting it to take over a year and a half to clear the backlog?
1: I wasn't uh, surprised I was uh, expecting somewhere between a year and a year and a half uh, just in a sense based on my experience of uh, dealing with access to care and wait times issues um, you know essentially uh, you know in in I'm a cancer surgeon so obviously my focus personally as a cancer surgeon is more in the area of uh, cancer but you know obviously I understand the challenges and Uh, orthopedic surgery who are doing a joint replacement or in general surgery and doing hernia repairs and other important surgical procedures, and of course uh, a cataract surgery and so on. So I wasn't uh, surprised by uh, the results of the study, but what is important is that we've used data, good data, and a good knowledge of our uh, uh, system to actually come up with guidance for Our partners, our hospitals, our ministry, our our surgeons to essentially, you know, create a sense of urgency to care for uh, the uh, patients that haven't been affected by COVID-19 but require surgical care.
0: Dr. Irish, I want to thank you for your time. I understand that it is uh, in high demand because I've heard your phone going off a bunch of times during this interview, and I don't want to hold you up from any more important work that you have to get to. Thank you so much for sparing some time.
1: Well, thanks for your interest. Again, have a good day. Have a great
0: day. Cheers. That's Dr. Jonathan Irish. He is a surgeon at the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre, University Health Network, and the University of Toronto, and very busy man. If you are an Uber driver, turn me up right now. If you know an Uber driver, tell them to tune in. This is an important uh, segment, I think, where uh, the drivers are concerned. Uber is attempting to force its drivers to give up their right to participate in the $400 million class action lawsuit that seeks to recognize them as employees rather than independent contractors. Lior Samfiru is partner at Samfiru to Markin LLP. He's the host of the Employment Hour, which airs tonight here on 640 Toronto. Lior, welcome to the show.
2: Great to be with you, Kelly.
0: Okay, this is a reaction to a Supreme Court ruling uh, against Uber in June, and it, your firm was, of course, representing the Uber drivers. Can you refresh our memories on uh, the the ruling?
2: Absolutely. So, essentially, when Uber drivers first started driving for Uber, they signed an agreement saying, if you ever have any problem with us, the only recourse you have is to file for an arbitration all the way in the Netherlands. Well, when we started the lawsuit, Uber said, "Well, you." can't start the lawsuit because there's this arbitration issue, they have to go to the Netherlands. So that issue as to whether or not they can be bound to arbitration made it all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, and back in June, uh, eight out of nine judges of the Supreme Court of Canada said, no, that is illegal, you cannot force the drivers to go to the Netherlands, you cannot make them uh, avoid going to the courts here in Ontario. So that's what happened, and now Uber is trying to find a way around that. So that's why we're talking.
0: Okay, so how is Uber trying to force their drivers to give up their rights? Because that's essentially what they're trying to do.
2: So get this. What uh, Uber drivers have been uh, getting over the number, past number of days is a message on their, their Uber app saying, uh, unless you accept this new contract, you're locked out of the app. So no matter what, unless you click Accept, You cannot continue working for Uber, and this contract is an amendment to the arbitration obligations that they had previously, and one of the things it does is it says, well, you can, uh, if you accept this, which, by the way, you don't have a choice, you agree that you will not participate in any class action, but we're going to be nice. If within 30 days you, you don't like this, you can opt out of the arbitration as long as you send us this email. The problem, Kelly, is that this is an eight-page document that Uber drivers are being sent. And I think Mm -hmm. practically speaking, no one's going to read eight pages and see that, oh, wait, we can also send an email to opt out of arbitration so that we can participate in the class action. So I think the net effect of what Uber is going to be doing here is drivers who don't know any better just want to continue working. They're going to accept this and find themselves potentially uh, unable to participate in arbitration or in uh, class action.
0: I think one of the things you just said stuck out to me, the most Uber drivers that want to continue working. What about Uber drivers that have to continue working? When did these new contracts come to your attention?
2: So these contracts came to my attention right uh, before this past weekend, so late last week. And I've been getting emails saying, well, I have to continue working, Mm. uh, so I have to accept. But here's the thing: the people that have contacted me, they're the the vast minority. In that, most people would not even think twice. That would not even necessarily understand the legal significance of what Uber is asking them to do. And I think that is the point. That that is what Uber is trying to do here, assuming that 99 out of 100 Uber drivers, or 99% of them, will simply accept and will find out when it's too late. Well, now. You cannot participate in this class action. You cannot get any compensation. And you're still stuck with this really uh, inappropriate arbitration process.
0: Okay, so what are you going to do about it, Leor? Is there anything you can do for the Uber drivers?
2: Well, the first thing I'm trying to do, and, and you know, one of the reasons we're talking right now, is I'm trying to get the word out to Uber drivers that once you sign, and I understand people will accept because they have to continue working, you need to opt out. So if you read that uh, document, there's an email address there when when within 30 days of your acceptance of that document, you have to send an email saying, I opt out of arbitration. So that's the main thing I want to do is to get the word out there to drivers uh, as best as possible. We're also going to be talking to the judge in the class action to see whether or not uh, what Uber is doing is legal, but we're certainly not going to just let them get away with it.
0: Okay. So if I'm an Uber driver and I get this new contract sent to me and says, well, you have to sign this contract or you're going to be locked out of the Uber app, but I have to work. I mean, I'm actually sitting in my car going, I'm getting ready for work and I can't change my plans. I need to feed my family. I click accept. Um, Can I go on tomorrow and opt out? Can I send them that email tomorrow or, or, you know, because I have that 30 days?
2: Exactly. As long as you, 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 you've done what I've said and you've read the email and you see the email address, you can send that email address and opt out. Now, a couple, uh, one point at least I should make here is that if you're driving for UberX and UberXL and also doing Uber Eats, that's essentially three contracts you're getting and you have to send three separate emails to three separate email addresses.
0: Wow. They're okay. not making it
2: easier for people. They're not.
0: No and and because why wouldn't they make why would they not make it easier for people because they're at risk of losing a lot of money here aren't they
2: Well they're not making it easier because they don't want people to opt out obviously mm-hmm. they they would want people to avoid or, or not be in this class action so they're not going to make it easy and, and and that's a problem you know they're trying to circumvent both the Supreme Court of Canada decision, as well as our class action laws in this province. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, they're taking advantage of individuals that probably don't know any better. Who's gonna read an eight-page document full of legalese, unless you're, you're a lawyer or someone that, that you know, likes of to read these things, most people won't.
0: Despite these new contracts, uh, the class action lawsuit is still gonna go ahead though.
2: Oh, absolutely. The class action is going ahead full force. And really, the the key here is that when it gets resolved at some point, which we, of course, believe will be in our favor, we want people to actually get the compensation that they're owed. And they're not going to get it if Uber ultimately gets them to, to not participate in this class action. So, you know, we're trying to get compensation through as many drivers as possible that we say are owed this compensation. They have not been treated in a legal way. Uh, so that's why we want uh, individuals to do their part to preserve their rights and preserve their ability to get whatever compensation may be coming to them.
0: All right. It's a a uh, $400 million class action lawsuit. What if there's only, I'm just asking out of ignorance here, but there's only three Uber drivers that um, are, because people sign up and then they realize their rights have been taken away, or at least they've agreed to have their rights altered um, by signing up uh, for the app and not opting out within uh, 30 days, as you're recommending it, could that 400 million uh, be split amongst three Uber drivers eventually? Is that a possibility or I'm just curious?
2: Wouldn't that be nice for those drivers? No, uh, it, it, it doesn't actually work like that. So let me simplify a bit. Essentially, what's going to happen if and when this matter goes to court, if we're successful, the judge is going to do some calculations and say, okay, per Uber driver, Uber's going to have to pay a certain amount of money. Let's say it's $5,000. So depending on how many people there are in the class action, it's going to be 5,000 times the number of drivers. So if there's three drivers, Uber would have to pay, in that example, $15,000. If there's 10,000 drivers, then again, we could do the math. So that's what Uber is trying to do here is to, to minimize that dollar amount, that, that financial exposure that it has.
0: Ah, We're at the uh, motivation for this new contract that they're trying to get Uber drivers to sign. Before I let you go, Lior, um, run through what Uber drivers need to know if they're just tuning in right now.
2: So many of them, in fact, most of them that have gotten this, I'm sure by now have already accepted. And that's that's OK. I understand. And I probably would have in the same situation as well. But go back to this contract, read through it, somewhere halfway there will be a line that says, if you want to opt out of arbitration, you have to send an email to this address within 30 days. If, and only if, you want to participate in the class action, send an email to that address, it will take you seconds. So at least by doing that, you're preserving your rights. So that's really what I'm, I'm telling people to do at this time.
0: All right, Lior, uh, I really appreciate your time, and we'll talk to you tonight. Uh, looking forward to the employment hour, as always, Wednesday nights here on 640 Toronto. Thanks so much.
2: Thanks, Kelly. We have a good day.
0: The Truth and Reconciliation Commission's final report said the residential school system amounted to a program of cultural genocide against the Indigenous people in Canada. And after more than 100 years of Canada's reg- residential school system, where at least 150,000 First Nation Inuit and Métis children were separated from their families and communities and victims of abuse from the late 1800s to the 1990s, it will now be recognized as a historic event. And two former school locations have been named National Historic Sites by the federal government. This was announced yesterday. Rye Moran is the director of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. He's our guest on the program. Welcome, Rye.
3: Thanks for having me on.
0: This historical designation of the residential schools, it just didn't happen overnight. It was a long time coming. Give us insight into what I imagine was the subject of a lot of opposition at first.
3: Well, you're 100% right. And, and you know, it's always uh, interesting where we start the story on this whole evolution of the work that we're undertaking. You know, I, I think it's very important to start the story, you know, over 100 years ago when Indigenous communities, families, nations uh, resisted the encroachment of, of Canada uh, into their families, uh, resisted their children being sent away to schools. And that resistance has really maintained constant uh, throughout uh, uh, history. Going back into the 1990s, I mean, we saw survivors, uh, you know, take the government and the churches to court, demanding that this country recognize the abuses that they suffered and, and the terrible harms that were created by this system. Of course, that led to the apology that led to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It's led us to this very day uh, now. And of course, there's a very long road that remains ahead of us.
0: You know, uh, the federal government formally recognizing uh, these two schools. Uh, there were some people talking about how um, this this uh, is, you know, it's it's part of the darkest chapters in our uh, book of history here in Canada. This this uh, recognition, this recognition of these height, uh, sites, it doesn't close the book on one of the darkest chapters. In my mind, it's a significant kickstarter that will begin volumes of stories and insight into unthinkable treatment of Canadian families. Do you see it the same way?
3: Absolutely. What we're really doing here, I, I like how you framed it, we're, we're literally opening the book further, or we're exploring the additional chapters of this story that uh, are so uh, central in in Canadian history. What this national uh, recognition really solidifies is that this is essential Canadian history. When we talk about the residential schools as a, a national historical event, what that says is this is a defining element of our national history. As Canadians, we have to pay attention to this. We have to understand this. We have to explore this. Likewise with those sites, those sites are, are long-standing places of, of uh, significant human rights violations, and as a country, we're now saying that this is a defining element of who we are, and, you know, we need to explore this.
0: You know, one of the things that I think when you hear about uh, the just horrible abuse that went on at these residential schools, and how you know it's it, it goes it, it goes through generations because there were literally generations of people put through the same system, and even the ones that didn't go through the system, they're still dealing with PTSD. How important is it? that these sites are there, these dark sites, for people to go to see so that they can start the healing process. And what will that do as far as healing all of us as a nation? Yeah. You know,
3: I've been talking to a lot of people about this over the last couple of days, and one of the things I've really um, heard a lot of people say is is that we have to understand this as a, as a massive, systemic process of abuse. And quite honestly, one of the worst things that you can say to somebody that has been abused is that we don't believe you. We don't want to listen to what you have to say. Uh, it wasn't that bad. you know. What we're doing in all of this here is affirming that we do see these survivors. We do hear uh, their cries for recognition. We do hear their cries of pain and suffering. And that validation, that seeing, that hearing is a really important part for the healing process overall uh, as a country. At the same time, Canadians also have to understand that Canadians are also on a, a healing path, whether they know it or not, because we have yet to fully realize a Canada that enshrines and, and upholds human rights. We still have significant human rights challenges right amongst our midst, uh, especially within Indigenous communities. and. When we think about where we need to get to, the country that we want to build, it's of paramount importance that we understand that this country has been damaged uh, significantly by this process of colonization. And we see these healing efforts as a process to build a better, stronger, more resilient, just, fair, equitable society together.
0: I want to touch on something that you just said. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's about colonization. And a lot of people think, well, I had nothing to do with the residential schools. I mean, it's horrible, but I had, I had no part of it. The reality is we all had a part of it. At least, you know, probably our parents did, um, through our tax dollars. It helped pay for that system. And, and so you can't just say I had no part of it.
3: That's 100% right. I mean, unfortunately, we're all implicated in this. We're all complicit. When we say that this is a, a defining element of Canada, that says as Canadians, this is a defining element of who we are. And one of the important things is that we need to take ownership over this. And we actually need to really recognize that it's all of our job to help Indigenous communities on their own path to healing. When we use words, when we, when we have researched and studied and talked to thousands of people and are left with no other words to describe what has happened in this country uh, other than cultural genocide, we have to recognize that what we are asking of Indigenous peoples is a monumental task because genocide means wholesale attack, wholesale efforts of destruction. And now it's our responsibility as Canadians to really stand alongside uh, support, lift up Indigenous peoples, so that uh, we can all collectively heal through this.
0: So these sites, these these two uh, former residential schools, one of them still standing, the other isn't. These sites are uh, literally the bricks and mortar. Uh, they're the truth portion of the truth and reconciliation. I mean, they allow us to see. Well, here's the site. This this these stories that are being told, they actually had a location and they had a truth, and uh, is is. Is it your hope that Canadians will actually make the trek? And I say Canadians, and I don't mean that in any disrespect. I'm talking about people that don't have First Nations backgrounds, that people that came from all over the place to call Canada home, that we will go to these sites and we'll learn something. And what do you hope that these sites will look like? Because I know that uh, one of the chiefs uh, of that, that actually the First Nation band that acquired uh, one of those residential schools back in the 80s. They are hoping that um, after this designation uh, that they'll turn the building into a museum, a residential school museum, a library, and a memorial uh, garden. What are your hopes for these sites?
3: Yeah, I think the hope uh, for these sites is that uh, Canadians will pay attention. And I think the, the challenge issued to all Canadians is pay attention to what is happening and was happening right in your own backyard. Before these sites were marked out, Before, uh, even today, there's still not highway signage up saying, hey, there's a National Historic Site, to your right, pay attention. There will be that one day. But we've been given this kind of convenient out in some ways as a society that we're enabled to just drive by these places and not even know. Well, the challenge now is to know. The challenge is -hmm. to to know where they are in your own backyard. The challenge is to go visit that, to talk to your kids about it, to listen to some of those uh, survivor statements from that school and reflect upon perhaps what that means for your own um, journey as a Canadian, how that might reflect your own journey to Canada, because, you know, so many Canadians have also fleed terrible, terrible uh, atrocities and levels of oppression from around the world. That's the one thing that really gives me hope for Canada, is that we can find our common sense of humanity, and we can reflect within our own past that... We have this common sense of justice. We just have to understand that Indigenous peoples have been served terribly poorly and that great injustices continue to play out within our national borders to this day.
0: Ryan, I want to thank you for your time today. I wish we had more time to talk about this important topic, uh, but we'll have you back again.
3: Thanks very much for having me on.
0: Cheers. Ryan Moran is Director of the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. Well, that is it for today's podcast. But if you like what you heard and you'd like to hear more, we broadcast daily between 9 a.m. and noon on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Have a great day. Cheers.